creatures, from the leaping cat to the cowering shrew, think of themselves as you, a logical center for the universe. Yet the cat eats the shrew, and we, like Schrodinger, live on to wonder what it means. End of chapter. Let's all take a seven-minute reflection break, and then come back. Balf, prepare the nanny pot. It's transformative. I'm gonna have to change my name again. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Killer Casting. I am Lisa Zambetti, and I am joined by my wingman from down under. It's Dino in Melbourne, folks. It's a pleasure to be here once again for part two of our uh, sort of deep dive into the wonderful severance. That's right. And we're, we had so much to talk about. Uh, we decided to do two episodes and we were joined by two friends of the pod um, that I think you're going to really enjoy hearing their perspective from. And that would be MJ Hughes and Matt Shafiq. So we hope you enjoy this discussion of this amazing show, Severance. Matt, do you, I I was wondering as a writer, there are certain propellants that push us through the episodes towards the finale. So I just kind of wanted to touch on the ones that as a writer or just as a, as a fan of the show, you wanted to remark upon. Yeah, sure. I mean, like, like I think every episode kind of built, like I I think uh, Dean was saying earlier, like that he fell more and more in love with the show as the show went on. For me, vibes, like not at all plot wise, but like in terms of how I felt about Lost, that first season where it was very character driven, but also building like the show is built on a lot of mysteries. You have a lot of questions, not just about what Lumen's up to, but like every character's sort of backstory, what their Audi is like. There's also like a mystery about the world. There's definitely something off about the world where things aren't right. Like I think people have noted like on Reddit and stuff, there's like very little food ever seen. There seems to be like a weird kind of scarcity of certain things. And, and you're not quite sure, like the actual state of the world is a bit unclear and, and, and it's, unsettling in that in that regard that goes into the also the production design that's not only the writing but like the lumen office being these brightly lit but like soulless you know environment but then outside being just sort of like i I can't even quite put the words into it as a writer but like sad there's like a sadness whenever you see outside world scenes social gathering is dreary yeah it's just kind of like there's a melancholy affecting everyone and that's so it's so well done and so elegant without spoiling it all one of the best season finales that they like I went into the season finale super excited uh, based on like what they built up to, what was going to happen. And then they perfectly executed it and nailed it. And then I'm just like, I'm on board, like whatever they do next, like minute one, second season two drops. I'm on board like this. I'm fully all in. It's it's every episode leaves me thinking about it afterwards. It's just like such great character writing, world building and mystery building as well. The perfect like trifecta. We're not going to spoil what happens, but I do want to tick off what made it. What are the elements that made it such a good finale? Because I have thoughts. Dean, I know you're jumping up and down to say something. So go ahead. <laughs> well, it's just me. You're just talking about my life in general, Lisa, or right at this point in time. Either way, it works. <laughs> Look, one thing, it's tied to the production design, but I remember reading years ago an article on, uh, where was it? It's in Den of Geek. 
And it was talking about the importance of corridors in science fiction movies. And then it goes into this long soliloquy of, um, you know, it was like a love letter to corridors. And so movies like uh, Star Wars and Aliens and 2001 and, you know, elements of all of that, some of that in here. But interestingly, the corridors in other movies are normally a way to get from one expensive, you know, if it's sci-fi, one expensive set to another, right? Whereas here, the corridors are like almost the destination. It's almost not about where they're going. It's about the journey to get there, right? Yeah. And so I think it's in the pilot or episode two. I think it's in the no, it's in the pilot. Mark at one stage walks through this through these corridors without a word of dialogue for 90 seconds. He's just yeah. walking yeah. and turning and walking and turning. Yeah. And the camera's either following him or it's you know front on and, and reverse tracking. And and even they throw in a little gag, I think, at one point, about two-thirds of the way through, he just rolls up his arm and looks at his watch as if to say, <laughs> yeah, I know, it's taken a fucking long time, isn't it? We don't care, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so just the way that they use the corridors as this confusing sort of, you know, mechanism from time to time, I, I just loved it. Anytime they're going into the corridors, I'm like, woo, you know, and sometimes <laughs> it would lead to a heli bouncing in and out of the stairwell or she's in the lift and, and, and doing what we know she, she was doing. And in real life, it was funny to find out that uh, I was uh, hearing the cast was saying that, so those all those walls are movable. So they built them so that they, they could be changed as the director required. So the crew would be, uh, sorry, the cast are walking through these things and they're like, I uh, need a little help here. Like they're actually <laughs> and lost. They don't know yeah, how to get out. Yeah, I heard the that. Adam come and start talking about go, that too. Um, yeah, take, uh, take the next one right, then two left. and it, Yeah, you're out. And so just that would be unsettling as an actor to be have a set that you don't even know whether you are in a set. That's funny. Uh, it's useful, right? If the characters are meant to be yeah. oriented at all times. So, you know. MJ, for you, what was the propellant of the through line that affected you the most? Like for me, like Helly's journey, her her fight to be free, her fight using all and anything necessary to get out. Of course, that's a propellant. And then the transformation of Irv from this ass kissing by the book golden watch at my retirement kind of a company man into let's burn this place down. That transformation was so delicious. And then, of course, you know, watching Mark get closer and closer to Petey and Mark getting more and more curious about what is going on inside of Lumen. I mean, these are multiple storylines that are just pushing you, pushing you towards this cliff. Yeah, I was going to say to me, it was it was the evolution of Mark for me. Like it was Mark's character because take him out and you wouldn't have a show. He needed to be there and he needed to have the realizations that he had when he had them. But the other thing was for me, the propellant was someone we haven't talked about yet, Dylan. And I'm trying not to give too much away, but his transformation as well as being the dude who wants the waffle parties and the dude who wants, you know, he's very much, we've all, if we worked in an office job, had a Dylan in our office. Um, You know, every single fucking one of us that's worked in office job um, has had a Dylan. But I think it was the pushing forward for me was the parallel narrative of both of them because it was, I don't know if you thought this, but I definitely did, two sides of the same story. They're both figuring out or trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Mark is just doing it more explicitly than Dylan does or comes to do. God, it's hard to do without giving away things. Jesus. 
<laughs> I know, I know, but that's okay. That's okay. That's interesting you say that because I actually thought if you take Hallie out, like they yeah. would just be all like their happy little uh, chooks in the pecking away, right? Certainly Irv and Dylan and even Mark would have towed the line. And she comes in and just turns everything upside down and says, fuck this, right? And yeah, yes. I read a quote. Sorry, I, I read an, an observation. And when I thought about it, I went, yeah, that's about right. 80% of her dialogue is questions. Mm-hmm. It's just her constantly pushing, pushing, pushing. She's pushing back against uh, against the corporation. She's pushing back against them being so placid and, and being accepting. And it's her that actually drives this stuff forward. And when you look at all the things that they have to cope with and deal with, a lot of it is her just trying to, you know, smash everything and, and fuck it up. So mm-hmm. I, I love that about, about her. That was awesome. She's like the closest to, I think, the audience proxy, right? All those questions, like everyone else is yeah. there and they're just accepting things. But then there's Heli, who's like new to existence and new to this world and new to everything and asking all the right questions. So like you're really rooting for her because you have all of her questions. Um, so that's pretty well done. But I think it's a combination of both the her, her and Mark. You couldn't have it. You couldn't have. Uh, one without the other, I think, and have a good show. Again, from the pilot, they tried it and it didn't quite work the same. Right, mm. right. Yeah, yeah. And that is such a crushing moment in the pilot, just having rewatched it. When she is face-to-face with herself on the videotape saying, I'm doing this willingly. And she has to, it is just, like I was saying, this existential crisis, like, I wanted this, but who am I? Which I is me. Right. Who are right. you? I mean, this bifurcation of the soul and of the experience and that this Audi created this other living being that's a prisoner. I mean, it's just, there's just so many things that just blew my mind. And then later when we do see these characters, you know, when we get to know all everybody's Audi, as they try to exist in this world in the finale and having these actors, I mean, the acting is just, what can I say? It's just phenomenal, but having them having to act as their Audi, right? They're an innie, (laughs) but they're acting as their Audi (laughs) is such a fucking layered thing to have to do it is wonderful for from an acting and performance yeah it's a, it's a mini little challenge before we get too far away from casting uh, i actually no one's mentioned him yet but the actor who plays milchek who i don't think oh. i've seen in, i don't yes. think i've seen anything absolutely. else absolutely tremble till yeah he like i think that's a master class in a role like he oh. doesn't do the thing oh my god because you know spoiler or whatever like he you don't he's pretty much a company man he pretty much works for lumen and we always see him as lumen guy but the job he does on the show of like being uh, the carrot and the stick when you're doing good, mm-hmm. you know, here he comes with a, a dance experience in the office and he, and, and he gets down. And for oh those like God. two minutes, oh, yeah. you're like, damn, Milcha can get down. And he seems like a fun, awesome dude to get along with. But the second you like cross him or cross the company and he has to now apply the stick, you're fucked. And he's having to play that role without it being like any kind of sci-fi. He's just a company man who can switch it on and off. He has to internalize all that. I want more Milchek. I want more Milchek backstory uh, in season two, hopefully. Me too. I like, hope we Patricia Arquette is great, but him as the like like company man, so good. So, so good. Oh my God, he's got such presence and the mm. styling of him is so weird. I mean, mm. it is almost like they've styled him like in the 70s. Yes, exactly. His hair is just tiny bit froed out and yeah. the, the the kind of shirts and it's just so interesting. But he reminds me of those yeah. characters from Get Out 
if mm. you remember that Jordan Peele movie, how there were some characters who on the yeah. outside were smiling, but on the inside were screaming and had all these secrets. I mean, there is something like that um, when he's dealing with the innies. His look is mirrored to the actual set design because they designed the sets to be like offices in the 60s slash, yep. I guess, 70s a little bit. So I think that like perfectly That's- lines up that Milchek is com- is the company. The company is Milchek. Uh, so yeah. I, I like right. that choice. It's cool. Definitely see it. You know who he reminds This is going to sound crazy. Or maybe not. I don't know. He reminded me of Yul Brynner out of Westworld, the original. Uh, I haven't uh, seen it. Stun, sil- stun silence. <laughs> <laughs> because he's this remorseless. He's like a, he's like the Terminator. Like you mentioned there, Matt. He can give you your melon balls and have the dance, but uh, he can also take you to the bad place. <laughs> It's time for your punishment. And he doesn't care. He will not stop. He's a company man all the way. There's no talking him down off anything. Oh, come on, Mr. Milchek, cut me a break. No, except that there's that one time that Dylan actually gets over him, but that's another story. (laughs) And then Matt, since since we're still talking about casting, I just wanted to mention a couple other actors. So Dyke and Lachman, who plays, oh, I can't spoil it, but she is one of the innies. She's auditioned for me many times. She is just oh, a fantastic nice. actress. Also, I mean, there are a lot of people in the show that I know, but I also wanted to shout out the guy with the goats. He's actually one of my students, Brian Rock. And when, I was, when I was teaching him, he's like, oh, I want to have this great role in Severance, but I can't tell you what it is. I'm like, okay. So then he was like, ah, and I saw him. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that was just, I mean, the casting by Rachel Tenner, who I had hoped this casting director to come on with us today. She was not available, but I think since it's getting a season two, she will come on because there's all kinds of things I want to ask her. She's been a longtime collaborator with Ben Stiller. So, but yeah, I mean, Nora Dale, who plays like the Stepford wife who has the baby, but doesn't remember her baby's name. She's auditioned for me mm. many, many times. Oh, and Ethan Flower. I have to shout out Ethan Flower. So he plays the guy who's sort of the... The, um, he's the senator. He's the state senator. He's the state senator. Yes, so he's, who's, you know, oh, pushing yeah. for severance, you know, for everybody. That's Ethan has come in for me as an FBI agent so many times. I, mean, <laughs> I tried like hell to cast him on Criminal Minds, either as an FBI agent or as a doctor. And I, he, I was thrilled to see him in this. I was screaming at my computer. Can I know two performances mm-hmm. or two performers that I actually have a connection to? Brit. Brit Lauer performed at my improv theater back in the day. Um, we, we, I don't think we like ever had more than like a passing hello, goodbye, good show. Uh, we weren't good friends or anything, but it's funny that she like came from that. It had this moment of like, I know her, but I can't yeah. pin it. And we found her on an improv team picture page from a decade ago. I'm like, oh my God, she performed with the magnet. She's and then genius in this. She's genius. Nikki James, one of the few cast members you did mention, who play the woman who goes on a couple yep. dates with Scott. She is great. She was formerly on Book of Mormon on Broadway. She's a friend. Uh, she's a friend of mine uh, from back in the day, but more like a close my, my like my high school prom date. Best friends with her in college. Uh, that's that's uh, how I know her. Wow. Hey Matt, speaking about that character and and recognizing this this is a dystopian nightmare that's uh, centered around technology. Well, it's not centered around, but it features technology. That character that you just mentioned, his uh, little love interest there on the side, the uh, the midwife. What's her name? What's what's the character's name? Her name on the show. I have the Wikipedia page open there, so I can cheat and tell you. Uh, what is it? Natalie? No, Natalie. Nikki M. James says Alexa. Alexa. <laughs> Alexa, how about that? (laughs) 
So where I live, one minute it's raining and the next minute it's 80 degrees and the trees and plants in my yard start going crazy, which makes my nose, throat, and eyes go crazy with all the pollen. But luckily for me, I have gotten relief from the good folks at Plantiva and their natural proprietary formulation of herbal extracts called Allerdx. I mean, I was sneezing and sniffling about to go into a Zoom meeting but I took an Aller DX and in 10 minutes, I had immediate relief. I mean, it was really something. So Plantiva is a family-run business and I have had the pleasure of meeting the Morrisseys, Dr. Steven and his wife, Jenny. And let me tell you, they are the real deal. I am really enjoying the products that they've had me sample. So you can try them yourself. Go to plantiva.com slash killercasting for your exclusive discount code. Hey, just a couple of shout outs for uh, some other characters who, and, and Lisa, I was about to say when you started this, hey, can we just talk about the, the car? What do, you, what do you think of, of the casting? Because it's brilliant. Of course, you've got superstars like Totoro and Walker. And then there's a funny story that Totoro was cast and he bent the ear of, of the showrunners and said, look, let's get Chris Walken on to do, you know, the part of, uh, of Bert. And they said, oh, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And obviously, Christopher Walken's a great find. And he said, yeah, but, you know, we've been good friends for like 30 years, so I don't, I don't have to pretend to like him on set. I actually do like him. <laughs> that was funny. But but I want to make particular mention of uh, Michael Chernus, who plays the Rickon, the author of the Self-Help oh, yes. book. He is such a gloriously prat. Like, I want to punch him in the face. He's just so hateable. Yeah. It is a brilliant role. The scene where Mark, actually in uh, episode nine, Mark's about to get a photograph. We all know what that's about. And um, uh, Rickon's assistant comes up and says, Butts in and goes, oh, I reckon your neti pot is warm. (laughs) And off he goes, and I'm just like, what a fucking perfect line that just encapsulates exactly what that guy is. That was a piece of brilliance. And the other guy that just pinned me, and I had to go back to work out why he did, is Michael Kumpsty, who plays Mr. Grainer. He's just got one of those (laughs) places. Classic that guy. Yeah, classic that guy. And it wasn't until I went into IMDb, I'm going, why do I find him? I've got a memory of him being menacing. And he played a role as Father O'Flaherty or something in Boardwalk Empire. And there's a scene in that where he's he's in his guard as a priest sitting behind a desk. And he there's a scene where he absolutely menaces the fuck out of these two characters on the other side of the desk. And it made such an impact on me that that's what I was remembering when I saw him in this, again, playing another menacing or sort of slightly, you know, weird kind of character. So that, and of course. The amount of shoe <laughs> polish, the amount of shoe polish in Kumsty's hair, it, it was like overwhelming. I loved it. I loved it. It was like this over-dyed older guy, you know, it was and Lisa, to finish off on the little cameos, my heart did skip a beat when I saw Yul Vasquez appear as Petey early on and yeah. uh, our, our um, alumni of Terry Nickelbocker. Where do I know him from? I, I, I recognize oh, him, man. but I couldn't he's put from, a he's from So many things. He's been around forever. He's another guy that I think we cast on Criminal Minds as a detective. I could be wrong. But yeah, he's just phenomenal. He's heartbreaking. He's terrifying. He's crazy. He's everything. MJ, any favorite performances? that you want to mention before we wrap this up? Gosh, they're just so... I just think that it was a perfect ensemble. Mm-hmm. Like, it couldn't have been cast any better than it was. It was remarkably cast. I just want to say, though, the two performances outside the sort of, like, characters that we talked about that were perfect for each other were 
Greener and Kubel. I loved that sort of, I don't know if you want to call it foliage. I don't know. That, that, oh, I love that. that. absolute juice. Yeah, I don't know if you want to call that, that out. That juice, juice, psychopath. Yes. Who know each other really well. That they both play. Oh, my gosh. Like, that absolutely sealed it for me. I you love You know they them. fucked. You know they fucked. You know, the, you know they fucked. You know they did it. And you know that the the scene where the, the line where Patricia Arquette, where Kerry Bell says, like, in this completely sparse and sinister way, it looks Grainer straight in the face and says, yes, Daddy. I was like, oh, <laughs> my Lord. Um, yeah. Do I need to go do something <laughs> like a shower or something like that? Those are the two that I loved to play off each other the most, I think. I mean, just to one more shout out to Rachel Tenner for casting. I mean, if you saw on a breakdown something that said, okay, here's Irv, we need a fawning if feet affected guy get me john Turturro. i mean that's not gonna be the first yeah you know? no so that that's wouldn't be brilliant it. you know that's that's a great creative out of the box thinking that's something that i aspire to so i particularly appreciated that but i just want to wrap up by talking about the finale a bit and like i said before what are the things that kept it so tight and so taut? And I know there are probably certain tricks that were employed, right, Matt? I mean, I the obvious one is ticking clock, right? You had yeah. from moment mm-hmm. one a ticking clock and tensions, and it was like uh, you had a bunch of characters who had a, basically a mission. They were all on a combined mission. It was sort of disparate, but a truth-telling mission, let's say, uh, or truth-discovering mission. And at every moment of every character, you were like, are they gonna? can they will they and and you see the little barriers coming up and you see the like oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god they planted the seeds perfectly well leading up to it and then just executed it flawlessly yeah yeah dini i think the finale was really uh they really stuck the landing on this because you're thinking how are they going to bring this together right and so just some little interesting things like when finally Helly's reveal comes as to her outie Little things then drop into place like, I don't know if you noticed, but every time Melchick would bring out his camera and he would, you know, you had like that old fashioned camera, like an old 1950s, you know, mm-hmm. silver, you know, camera. There was only one person he was photographing and that was Telly. And then you go, and then you go, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. And, you know, in the pilot, in the her, you know, in, in, at the end of the pilot, she um, is crossing the parking lot as her Audi mm-hmm. after work. And Mark yes. almost accidentally hits her. She's carrying some flowers, which I didn't clock before. But now it's like, congratulations, your first day of like, well, how that's significant. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, uh, that's a good little touch. Yeah, they planted the seeds really well. And Sorry, also yeah. the, the fact of who she is then also makes sense about the, let's say her infamous scene in the lift and how freaked out they were within Lumen about that, right? And you go, oh, mm-hmm. that makes sense mm-hmm. too. I thought and the reason why she couldn't quit, the reason why she couldn't quit. Yeah. Like, like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you had that question going into the finale, why can't she quit? That's right. Uh, look, there's still the, the big question in the air, which is what is it that MDR is actually doing, right? What, okay, what we still don't know what, they, yeah. what they're doing. We also don't know why 80% of their files expire before they can complete them. 
right? Right. And so right. that's why there's a race to get the quarter done, to get the numbers, to lock those things away. And on that point, we haven't touched on production design. Well, we've touched on it, but we haven't gone into it. But I just want to say that as a computer nerd, you know, for decades, I'm looking at the computers going, what a brilliant idea, right? So first of all, you've got this floor that's the size of a football field, right? And it's got green carpet. And then all the desks are pushed together, like back to back. So in all that space, all you got to do, they just got to lift up in their chair, like, you know, with their with their hands to look over and peek at the next person and talk and to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's neither, great... it's not six foot yeah. high where you can't look over and it's not low where you can just look and see them. You've actually got to peer over. And interestingly, <laughs> somebody made the observation that, back in Marcus and Outy, that uh, Mrs. Blank, Folbig? Selvig, Selvig. Mrs. Selvig's house, when you look at their house from the road, her house is slightly higher than hers and she can look in and observe him. But anyway, <laughs> back, back to the computers and, and the fact that they can look at each other over these things and, you know, trade little barbs and quips. When you look at the computers, and I've read interviews with the guys who were doing the set design and the production design, they were trying to make a computer that didn't look like anything. They tried hundreds and hundreds of computers and they've ended up with this thing that's pure white, which is funny because until Apple came along, computers were all beige, right? Every computer in the world was beige. Then Apple came out with the IMAX and color came and then metal came and whatever. But they've ended up with this weird computer where you've got a CRT monitor, right? An old fashioned cathode ray tube, but it's a touch screen. You've got, you've got this code and numbers on the screen that we see but clearly, these analysts are seeing it like they saw code in the matrix. They're seeing stuff that we don't see. That's what they're trained to do. So they see beyond that. Like, how would we know what numbers are scary? But they know when they are after they learn. And then they've got these massive big trackballs, like something from, from the 60s. So it's like they've gone back to Park Xerox in the 60s and gone to some warehouse where they just, you know, put all the, the you know, the bits that didn't work out and they've dragged them out. But what they end up looking like is like a child's toy. And this is another element of the show that we haven't even discussed. And that is that when they're in, when they are their innies, I think they're entirely infantilized, right? And it's like the people from Lumen are the, are the parents and these are like kindergarten kids. The room almost looks like a play center, right? The MDR level. They've got these very simple kind of computers. There's nothing complex going on. And what do they get for rewards? Melon balls and a little dance, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, if, if you yeah. clean your room, I'll give you a bowl of melon balls, all right? Or if you behave, okay, we can put on, you know, the wiggles and we can have a dance or something like that. Well, other than the whip and the S&M scenario, I would be with you. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't say it was all, I didn't say it wasn't nuanced. Don't get me wrong. Well, the children angle is one of the more funny, more interesting psychological angles of it, right? Because they're creating new consciousnesses that are essentially zero years old when they're born in That's adult right. bodies. And it's, it's like an interesting, they sort of made a compromise, which like, you know, all the things you sort of knew, like life-wise in, in theory, mm -hmm. you don't know your name, but you know, like states and like you know basic facts and like as mark had asked in the finale he understands metaphors your education is mm -hmm. sort of there but also like for irv who experiences like romance like that's that version of irv's first like sexual urge or whatever like that consciousness of them so they are like children to mm. a certain degree they haven't experienced that's so right. much they of don't life have, and so they, they don't they, have life experience yeah yeah no. That's, that's yeah, right. yeah, so yeah. There's yeah. an interesting theory on Reddit that, that what the MDR is doing is one theory is that they're actually preparing future se se severance, severance people, people severed. Yeah, people, people who are who are about to become severed. 
that they're prepping them for that and that that's what they're doing is those numbers represent their you know their kind of their consciousness and they're working out you know what they need to take out so to mm-hmm. speak to prep them for a severancing and the other theory interestingly enough is that the whole of of everything that they're doing is about preparing a cloning and the reconsciousness of Kia the founder by the way MJ question for you very unusual name, Kia. Where have you ever heard that? K-E-I-R. Does that ring any bells? Or Matt, anyone? Kia Delay. Uh, not to me. Kia. Yes, Lisa. Kia Delay um, 2001. Uh, was, was the actor from 2001 yeah. who, at the very end of that sequence, the very final scene, he's the big baby that's now, he's the father of the earth. He's like, you know, he's going to bring oh, this new I hate consciousness that movie. I don't want to earth. talk about it. Um, MJ, why don't you, why don't you uh, bring us home here? <laughs> Bring us home here. Any? What are your thoughts? And then we gotta. I gotta go take a nap. On the on the on the finale, or just in yeah, general, that you, or said just, that you yeah. wanted to shout out. I think that this this show is just is the reason Dean was talking about the the numbers. I think that it's not about the the characters, the the innies or the outies. It is about refining and manipulating the human experience. Mm -hmm. So we see all around us exactly what corporations want us to see, right? You know, if we want to, you know, we only have to talk about something and then it shows up on our Facebook feed. So what if the numbers that they were refining were not to do with them at all, were to do with us as a population? And that's what I took away from the concept of macro data refinement. Yeah. Um, yeah. We didn't. That's, that's what I was, that's one of the things that I was thinking about the I most. I mean, we didn't really talk about this, but in corporate America, wouldn't they fucking love to have workers who had no personal life, right? And who could not divulge any company secrets? I mean, this is really the perfect You, you say that like it's hypothetical. Well, I mean, you know, this is sort of, we're not too far away from that. And I also love that the name Lumen, you know, at first it's like Lumen, like a light, but it's also looming, like it's mm. looming over and everything is labeled Lumen. <laughs> but um, I'm just, I was so, so into it. And just the mic, I mean, all of these actors are just performing all these nuanced journeys on like a microscopic level i mean mm. it's just so amazing well, but interestingly we'll listen on, on that point it turns out they had an eight-month break in production mm. because of covid yeah so what it did mm. was is it let the writer's name just escape me sorry what's it, it was able to finish all of the scripts and all of the actors were able to learn all of the lines when they first hit the set they had eight months of of prep and i think you know that really showed i'm going to close with two very little short nuggets one is an interview that it was interesting with patricia arquette where uh the interviewer it's jen cheney from vulture and i'll put a link in the show notes she says it seems like mrs selvig has lived next door to mark since before pd left the company why is she keeping an eye, an eye on mark as opposed to any of the other seven employees patricia arquette says i know the answer to this but I'm not telling yet because it could ruin some things. So there's a little tease for, for, for series, for series <laughs> least, two. And at least they know where it's going, though. Yeah, a little Unlike bit. other shows. Yeah. And then I can't do an episode without hauling up some very obscure fact, and that is if you think about the scene where Mark finds Petey at the gas station in distress and he's being taken away by the yeah, MJ's clutching his heart. It is a it is a very uh, touching thing. But um, this is the same gas station, and how's this for a connection, 
as seen in John Wick 1, when he's filling up his car <laughs> and uh, what's his name? Uh, Alfie Alley, uh, the guy that plays the son of the Russian mob boss, first covets his beloved Mustang or whatever it is and then goes and steals it, which sets off the entire film. That's the same gas station in New York. So there you go. There's I thought you were going to say that it's the same gas station where, where Jim proposed to Pam in the office. But anyway, that's what it is. So <laughs> last, <laughs> last thoughts, um, MJ and then Matt, and then we got to go. Yeah, if you want to show that is going to make you feel completely like your brain has actually been cut open and severed, watch this. You, you won't. Even Ben Stiller says he sees the world completely differently now after making this show. So you will too, definitely after watching it. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that during, just prior to the production of this show that Adam Scott has said that he lost his mum to ALS um, and that the show actually helped him process his yeah, I just learned that this morning when I was I googled Adam Scott's name, and yeah, he said that the show helped him process his grief through the character of Mark. So that's a also a connection, I guess, albeit a very sad one, on to one of the other shows that this podcast mm. has covered. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Matt. I just love this show so much. I can talk about it kind of endlessly. So this is going to be an opportunity to do so. Just such great attention to detail um we didn't talk about this at all but like in the finale at uh rickon's party the guests they were all super weird there's another <laughs> casting thing of like yeah. people had one or two lines and it was like oh i gotta change my name again and it was like what like yeah, there's like right? small, little, so small little yeah, moments yeah. that were just like amongst all the tension and all the other shit going on you were like what <laughs> that was hilarious and stupid uh so she just did like a hit, brilliant hit, job hit, in that scene too just, sitting, just sitting next to Mark in the background. She had yeah, so much going yeah, on. Yeah, I just yeah, loved yeah. her in that little scene. It was a fantastic little cameo. Yeah. Small, small moments, big moments, all just so good. Chef's kiss. Absolutely. Well, you guys, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a blast hearing everything that you observed and felt. And I'm so glad that it's coming back. So we'll have a chance to figure out what the fuck is going on. And maybe we'll come back and talk about it again. Okay. But for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. Audio editing by him, Sean at choicevoiceproductions.com. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting out.